You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Uh, We're doing something a little different with the show this week. We're going to put out five episodes, a new one every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and each one will be with a winner of this year, the 2021 George Polk Awards. Now, the Polk Awards, if you are not familiar, very, very prestigious journalism award. They're handed out every year. They give out many. And in fact, a lot of the people who won this year have been on long form. So Ed Young won, Katie Engelhart, a whole bunch of folks who we talked to. Uh, But this week, we're going to talk to five winners, none of whom have been on the show before. And the episodes are going to be a little shorter than our normal episodes. And we're really going to dive deep on the winning pieces. And it's just some incredible, incredible journalism that we're going to get to talk about this week. I'm really, really excited about it. And this first episode is with Tristan Atone. Tristan wrote a piece for High Country News. It was called Land Grab Universities, and he wrote it with a scholar named Robert Lee. The piece is about how land-grant universities, which is maybe a term you know, maybe is a term you don't, how they came into the land that they were granted. It's a huge data-driven investigation, and what Tristan and Robert Lee did was go back and figure out not just exactly how that land was given to universities, but who that land was taken from. Tristan and I talked about how he investigated that, how you synthesize that much data into something understandable and compelling. And then we talked a little bit about what's happened since the piece came out, which is pretty significant. So anyway, here is my conversation with Tristan Atone about his piece, Land Grab Universities. Stay tuned for the rest of the week. We got more of these conversations with George Polk winners coming your way. Hey, Tristan. Hi. Uh, Congratulations, man. Thank you. It's a significant award. And I remember when that piece came out, it just absolutely blew me away. And it's so deserving of this recognition. So congratulations. Well, thank you. And and, uh, thanks for reading it. Uh, When it came out, we didn't actually think anybody would read it. uh, Really? uh, Well, it came out on March 31st, I believe, of last year. And that was two weeks after uh, World Health Organization declared a pandemic. So, like, there was no other story. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, was anything else on anyone's mind at the time? 
No, pretty much. No, everybody was <laughs> locked down. Like you, you, you couldn't read news that wasn't COVID-19 related. So then this came out and we were just like, oh, my God, like this is the worst time in human history to put out a uh, uh, a story not related to COVID. So um, nice to hear people were reading it. <laughs> I can imagine. I want to talk about both the work that went into it and the impact it has had. But would you mind just to start sort of summarizing what the piece is about? Yeah. So um, basically, we looked at how land grant universities uh, got their start, um, and specifically through the Morrill Act which granted land to land-grant universities uh, to raise seed money for their endowments. You know, it, it's, uh, it's a very educational story in that way and looking at a law that's, you know, more than 100 years old. But what we were able to figure out um, in terms of our reporting and investigating was that that land that the federal government gave to land-grant universities uh, was expropriated indigenous land uh, from about 250 different tribal nations, uh, broken up into almost 80,000 different parcels, and then given to 52 universities. It's an area when combined is about the size of Denmark. So it's a, it's a massive amount of land uh, from all over the United States that was basically just siphoned into land-grant university coffers. The scale of the siphoning is absolutely staggering like i feel like there's several times in the article where you just try and like be like all right we're talking about like connecticut and massachusetts combined but one of the things that i'm embarrassed to say i was surprised to read i think i've been hearing that term land grant universities you know i don't know for 30 years or something and i always just assumed that what that meant was that they had been granted the land on which they sat. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I just, it never occurred to me that what that meant was they were given deeds to land all over the country that they could then sell or by other means profit from as a way of creating an endowment. It, it never, it, I mean, again, I'm sort of embarrassed to say this. It never occurred to me that that meant anything other than here is some land for you to start a college on. Yeah, I mean, I was in the same boat, um, which is why I was sort of blown away by my co-author, Dr. Robert Lee's research into this. Um, this story came about entirely through chance. Both of us were doing fellowships uh, at Harvard at the time. There was a uh, an evening where scholars were going to be presenting on their work around uh, indigenous topics. So I wanted to just go check it out, see what folks were doing. And Dr. Lee was doing his presentation on the research he was doing here and just sort of, I, same as you, sort of blown away because I thought land-grant universities were also just given land to build on. And uh, after watching the presentation and his research, was like, oh my gosh, that's not, that's not what's happening here at all. But I also think speaks to sort of the mythology around land-grant universities that we really wanted to like examine head-on in terms of not only like misinformation around like what land grant actually meant, but also obviously who the land came from, like two sort of major bits of information that people, I think, tend to not understand. Yeah. And the question, you know, I had while reading your piece was, to what extent was that by design? Um, well, I mean, <laughs> I think that probably speaks to sort of the mythology of the United States altogether, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think the thing that we're hinting at here and, and looking at is that 
these stories of how the U.S. was founded, sort of, you know, carving a society out of the wilderness, is, is we know to be completely untrue. But uh, that sort of mythology seems to, like, remain um, really hard to dislodge from sort of collective American memory. So you're at Harvard. You hear this lecture. You have the same kind of holy shit moment that I had reading your article. What happens next? How, how do you go about trying to document this land that was stolen and misappropriated? You know, Dr. Lee had done a lot of this research already by sort of pulling down a lot of these primary documents, automating as much as possible from what existed in sort of spreadsheet form and whatnot uh, from, you know, state, federal and university like sources. The next thing that we really had to do was go and find additional primary documents to pull all of that down. So, you know, Robert went to, you know, the National Archives to pull stuff down. You know, we were getting all of those documents and then inputting them into spreadsheets. You know, right before publication, we realized, like, in doing the fact check that we had missed, like, 150,000 acres in New Mexico. So we had to send our photographer, Kaylin Goodluck, actually, had to go up to the, like, Bureau of Land Management office, get the documents. He's on his phone going over them with Robert and in the UK. Right. I mean, it's kind of thankless data work, you know. I mean, uh, you know, like, when it all comes together, it's amazing. But it's the, like, <laughs> the inputting of stuff is... Well, it has, I mean, yeah, there's something about, there's so many numbers in the piece. There is so much data. I mean, again, like just trying to help people who are listening understand the scope of what we're talking about. Like you guys missed 150,000 acres. It's just so vast, the land that we're talking about. But there's there's an aspect of the sort of data and the relentless collection of it that does have these like this kind of air of like the banality of evil kind of, you know what I mean? It's just like, I think that's reinforced by the photographs that are in the piece too, which are just these kind of like, I don't know what the word is exactly. They're very still mm. pictures of just like a basketball court, the front door of the director's guild of America in West Hollywood, the things that have come to live on this land that the university sold. They're just such facts of current american life you know yeah and uh yeah again i think speaking to that idea of expropriated land and the indigenous communities um that have rightful title for instance to to that land i mean california you bring up for instance you know treaties were signed with tribes for that land and then the federal government decided not to ratify those, ignore them, and keep them secret for, you know, for uh, like decades in order to not have to pay for what they negotiated for. Um, but I mean, yeah, I think the the banality of that is something that that I found really interesting, especially even with Kalen's photos. And and I think for folks that are listening, one of the ways that that Robert has been able to sort of like clue folks into what you're looking at here is like when you're on an airplane and you're looking out the window and you see those those different squares and blocks of uh, farmland for instance when you're you know flying anywhere in, in the U.S. those are those parcels that we're talking about so when we say 80,000 parcels you know it's 80,000 of those different sort of like big blocks that are just sliced up all over the United States, which is what made this a really complicated story to figure out, because you have to find it. You have to find every single one over 24 different states just scattered all over the place. It's a super complicated area. And because of the banality that you're, you're describing here, I think makes it diffuse across the landscape is that um, we were hoping that when people are sort of reading this and walking around, they might think, 
what is this piece of land that I'm on? Right. Who did it belong to? How did it get into like so-and-so's hands? Like, what is the history here? And hopefully some folks are thinking that way. How do you do that in a story? How do you get people to sort of put themselves, if not in the moment that they're reading it, then the next time they set foot outside to put themselves in those parcels and acres and try and think differently about the, the ground they're walking on. Well, I mean, in this case, I think it's the receipts. Yeah, I mean, we have receipts for every single one of these parcels of land, basically. You know, and paired with, for instance, Kalen's photos uh, that you mentioned, I mean, we were really, really happy with all of the pictures that he took because they seem so mundane. They seem like something that you would see, like when you're just sort of out about. Just um, driving down the street, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, part of that also was being able to make sure that people could explore these different areas that we did through the uh, Land Grab You web app that we put together. You know, being able to drive through those parcels, it's just really like it's a really different experience when you're sort of looking on the map and driving yeah. through there and being able to say like, oh, look, there's that and there's that like people are living here. Here's a church that's here. Here's a like when you are armed with that information and actually like on these different pieces of land. I, I, I mean, I, for me, I find it a very, very different experience. Right. And again, it's like, it's two things at once, right? I mean, I'm looking at a photo right now of a playground in Blackhawk, California. It's the most nondescript playground you've ever seen, you know? It's like set against a sort of like California hill and there's a swing set and a slide. And listed here are one, two, three, four, five, six different groups of indigenous people who had cared for this land. And it does feel to me like it's these two things because it's like, one is it makes you think about, okay, well, in this situation, this playground I'm looking at, that parcel went to the University of Delaware, paid nothing. It was worth 75 bucks in 1851 or whatever it was. And so it was land that was taken and directly profited from. But also there's this thing running through the story that I think it does force you to think about when you're walking around, which is just how much land was taken and not documented and sold. Well, I, I mean, I think to that point, like this is a very small sliver of just looking at land in the U.S. just generally, right? So this methodology is not just for like the Morrill Act. Like you can pair right. any amount of data you want to those original sort of like treaty or seizure areas because those are, this is federal government data. So You've got the baseline data to work from, and that is mm -hmm. land that was uh, that was negotiated for, never paid for, and there was stuff built on top of it. What was the experience like for you to sort of hold all of that complexity as you went through this process? I mean, like trying to figure out how you tell a cohesive story about this and then also find a way to both communicate and organize the vastness of what we're talking about. I mean, really, it was just really organizing around like the data and again, those receipts and stuff, I think. I yeah. mean, for for instance, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's not a sort of like uncommon idea in indigenous communities that like the United States has stolen land, right? Like that's standard issue, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, if you're already sort of like, this is sort of common accepted uh, fact uh, right. in like Indian country, you know, just pairing the receipts with it is just a, it's a different sort of process i think but i also think that in terms of a lot of like non-native readers for instance it's 
putting those ideas together, suddenly like, you know, like how that process worked. And I need to sort of rethink the entire land base of the United States. Uh, but I mean, I think to make this a piece of investigative journalism, it's really thinking through like, what are we revealing? Like, what are the sort of top line like revelations that we're coming to with this with our like, reporting and research? Right. And in this case, it's interesting, because you sort of went into it, knowing what the top line takeaways would be, the work was actually going in and figuring out how to how to prove that with the receipts. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's we're talking, uh, you know, all combined here, like half a billion dollars worth of profit off of just these small portions of land. Right. And obviously then our follow up and looking at who still owns land, uh, which is, you know, like 16 universities uh, still profiting off of the surface and mineral rights because they never sold the stuff. So, you know, those top level ideas are, I think, the big things that we just needed to get to readers in a understandable way. Because this is, I mean, it's super complicated. Totally. And this one is a tough one to find, like, characters that can take you through the story. Yeah. I mean, that was actually one of the big things that we were, uh, like, really working toward in the early iterations of the draft. And we were doing a lot of outreach with, like, indigenous communities to talk through what the data was that we had. And we realized after, you know, like, three or four different approaches is that everybody we would talk to about this sort of needed the same thing. And they were just like, we just need to read what you're talking about first before we can even like get into the comment or figure out what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like we could share even like early maps or, you know, like really raw uh, like materials, but um, it was really, really tough to be able to marry story, at least initially with this, because it was just like such a massive amount of information and just, stuff that nobody had ever seen before. Yeah. Um, which is why we went with Ishii, at least, uh, in our lead uh, yeah. with the story. Also, I mean, he made a great lead, too. But um, now that folks can read the stuff, understand sort of what the process is that's happening here, like, I'm hearing a lot more folks that are talking to, like, tribal historic preservation officers and, like, being able to start narrowing down on land. I know, like, University of Arizona, those they're they're sending students out to like visit all of the different parcels in Arizona to get a sense of like what's out there, like get familiar with that land, that kind of a thing. So I, I think those main characters and stories are definitely coming now. Um, mm. Sort of just, but we 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 realize that this was to some degree like the curtain raiser, like explainer. Um, right. After trying this a couple times and people just being like, I, "This is a lot." Like, <laughs> well, yeah, it's you're right. It's totally, I totally get it. So well, I think in a way the experience of reading the story is that it, it kind of unspools and it's not like you're necessarily holding back revelations, but I feel like it's, it's more like um, you're sort of saying like, yeah, yeah. The thing that we just told you, it's, it's, um, it's fucking crazy. I'm just going to say it again in a slightly different way with a little bit more expanse. So you can sit with that. Cause I don't think you would have been able to totally understand it the first time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and, and, uh, and by the end you both really understand it and are floored. It's interesting what you were just saying about the University of Arizona and it's sending its students out to these parcels. The story ends with one school, South Dakota State, which is now using the money that it is still making from these parcels to fund scholarships for indigenous students, which I took to be the sort of like most direct engaging with what you have uncovered here that any of these universities is doing. 
once the piece was out in the world, have you seen other impacts at the university level or people starting to think differently about this history? Yeah, I mean, and the South Dakota State example uh, speaks to sort of our follow-up reporting. I mean, the South Dakota State has been able to identify what Moral Act parcels were never sold. And what they've done is direct all of that revenue toward Native students. Um, they're the only university that does so at the moment. Uh, but I think we're probably seeing a little bit more like uptick uh, from other universities around this. I mean, in terms of impact, we've got like University of Florida, Cornell and Yale, uh, like student governments there and advocates on campus um, have like demanded investigations. They've protested for racial justice around this. They've petitioned for uh, increased recruitment and funding for uh, Native students that have essentially been disadvantaged by the Moral Act. You know, college admissions stakeholders put out a uh, policy brief uh, demanding that uh, Native American students receive free tuition from land-grant universities, as well as uh, advocating for the return of those parcels that are still remaining in the system to tribal nations. System-wide, we're now beginning to see like a lot of impact happening. Most of that is coming from faculty, staff, and students. It is not coming from administration. Uh, but, uh, you know, what form it takes at each institution is obviously like super different. Right. Because, you know, the other factor that advocates and whatnot have to think about is like how are they interfacing with tribal nations and indigenous communities that are impacted by this? And those conversations add like a very different layer to, you know, like how responses can be meted out. You were saying earlier that for indigenous people, the dynamics in this story, the idea that land was stolen is not a new idea. But was there anything in this story that for you was surprising and has changed the way you think about this stuff in any way? Like, what was the impact for you personally of doing this work? Well, I mean, learning how that system was working was definitely like a big eye opener. Um, also, being able to lay hands on data that proves these sort of accepted facts um, in new ways was really exciting. I mean, being able to just use all federal data uh, or like established data sources, you know, quote unquote established data sources to show this massive wealth transfer. You know, I mean, I, I really hope uh, sort of sets an example for the kind of investigative journalism that indigenous reporters um, can do with support. What floored me was universities absolutely ignoring this information. You know, for instance, we understand that the Association for Public and Land-Grant Universities uh, were in communication with all of the universities in our data around, um, you know, like response to what we were asking when we asked for comment um, and let folks know what we were going to be putting out. You know, and the fact that there was almost sort of like no response to us from a lot of institutions, I think, speaks volumes. And I'll, granted, you know, COVID was like hitting at the time. Uh, but, you know, even since then, we've just seen sort of no acknowledgement of what's happening with this information. So the fact is that like you've got you've got institutions, uh, especially over the last few years, who talk about the importance of facts and the importance of truth and the importance of like land grant university missions when presented with facts 
that uh, speak to their, uh, you know, beginnings that are not particularly favorable, they're ignored. And that, I think, speaks to me about a sort of like larger mountain of information and reporting that I I hope to see sort of like overcome in my lifetime here. But the beginnings of the United States are something that people don't want to let go of, even if it's a lie. Thank you for doing this, Tristan. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And congrats on the award. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Courtney Harrell is editing this series on the George Polk Award winners. And we'll be back with another episode tomorrow. We're going to have one every day this week. And then we'll be back to uh, regularly scheduled programming next week. So stay tuned. Thanks to the Polk Awards for making this happen. See you tomorrow. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.